well. It's a question of riots, rorts and recession this week as uh, it's all doom and gloom in Australian politics, but luckily we're $60 billion better off than thought. The political games have started, the most disgracefully irresponsible protests taking place on Saturday and we dispel the myths of systemic racism in Australia. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast of Paddy Network, your entertaining dose of Australia's news with Paddy's views. Today's program is proudly brought to you by MRM Group, the, the experts in civil and structural design engineering. Visit mrmgroup.com.au. And now, for your no-holds-barred 360-degree view of politics and law, you're listening to Podcaster Paddy's Parliamentary Privilege. Indeed you are, and we're very grateful to have your company. To all four of you listening, uh, hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Parliamentary Privilege on the Podcaster Paddy Network. It's great to have your company wherever you may be listening, whether it's uh, on your chosen podcast platform provider, if you're on any of Apple or Spotify, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, or even Radio Public, please, if you enjoy or even tolerate this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate us five stars, and leave a review because every review we can get helps this movement take off in the right direction. The best place to access all the show notes, all the transcripts, and all the additional content for all of our podcasts and columns, whether it's about Footy, thanks to the Green Maggot, whether it's about aviation, thanks to the Cleared to Land podcast, which will be launching tomorrow, whether it's about news, thanks to Australia Today, which will be coming out as a daily podcast in the coming weeks, or whether it's just due to live entertainment fluff, the sort of show about nothing, bluster and bulldust, a live talkback style show, wherever you want to get any information from any of our programs, the best place to go is www.podcasterpaddy.com. You'll also find all our social media links and our feedback form with our contact details right there, www.podcasterpaddy.com. Well, now that the uh, sort of elongated introduction is over, I should perhaps take this opportunity to explain what this show is about. So it's a uh, it's a podcast focusing on politics and law from the perspective of a student at a respectable university, not a group of eight university, but a respectable one nonetheless. I should point out just in the interests of full disclosure, although you'll probably work this out very early on anyway, It'll be presented from a largely conservative perspective. This will not be a socialist spew fest. That actually sounded quite good, didn't it? Not a socialist spew fest, nor will it be a Murdoch Parrot Hour. It'll be 45 minutes to an hour, probably on every Wednesday morning, although I'll most definitely keep you posted if anything changes. And it'll be built around interviews and debates with credible guests who actually can offer something. And I want to just talk to you about two key concepts. Just These are sort of two principles upon which this podcast is founded. Just think about this. The first is policies over games, and the second is listeners over presenter. Policies over games is an interesting one because the two sort of the two have become more or less interchangeable in recent years, perhaps more so in America, which we'll be talking about uh, extensively this week for reasons that should be fairly obvious. But also, it's also happening to a lesser degree here in Australia. Pod Save America, which is a, sort of a renowned lefty podcast in America, has described conservatives as being the sort of people who, and I quote, shout that the sky is green and the grass is blue, and everyone who disagrees with it is a traitor, close quote. Even in Australia, Paul Murray, who does a very successful show on Sky News here after dark, has social media posts every Thursday declaring who have been the winners or losers this week. Politics is not necessarily a game. It's not something where you get four points at the end for winning or where you don't for losing. It's about achieving genuine outcomes. 
and about not allowing your country to be railroaded by people whose movement seems, on the face of it, to be nothing other than an excuse to rip down the social fabric of our great nation. Most political shows serve, in my opinion, to sort of appease the ego of the host. It's content designed to perpetuate an echo chamber and appeal to listeners who are already well and truly confirmed in what they think. And as a way to make their arguments more credible, they invite guests on who agree with them and talk about things ad nauseum to reinforce that point. My podcast will provide much greater value to the listener as it'll be built around this concept, which I'm going to call the right way forward. How we can progress and build as a nation without being ripped apart by the policy failings of the progressive left. Think of it as a sort of a modern, a modern update of conservatism. It's better for younger listeners due to the fact that we will actually focus on issues that are relevant to you because, believe it or not, as good as Sky News and 2GB are, talking about superannuation and franking credits is probably not the sort of thing that you want to hear about. Luckily, our research extends beyond the front page of the Tally or the Herald Sun. There'll be some stories you haven't heard about which we will enter into the fore and we'll shine a light on what's really happening in Australia and around the world. Now, there's obviously been a lot happening in the political world this week, uh, not least because of the uh, everyone being sick and tired of hearing about COVID-19. But in order to make it as straightforward as possible, I'm going to package it now for you in The Week That Was in 90 Seconds. The Week That Was in 90 Seconds starts in... Now. Well, in days gone by, the three R's used to refer to reading, writing and arithmetic. But today... We've got four new R's, racism, riots, rorts and recession. Racism has been on the agenda uh, in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis last week. Unfortunately, logic is out the window and the cries of racism have been loud and clear both in the United States and in Australia. I'll explain why those claims are somewhat over-exaggerated in a moment. Rorting has been rectified, or to some degree anyway, after the robo-debt ruling resulted in $723 million, uh, which is set to be paid back in compo, while Labor's live cattle export ban also met the wrath of the federal court. That, I'm afraid to say, is nothing short of arrogance personified. Josh Frydenberg declared that a recession is imminent after a contraction of 0.3% in the first quarter. The June quarter, as a result of the COVID-imposed shutdown, will be significantly worse. Riots are plenty in America after the president's photo opportunity went horribly wrong. Protests are shit for Victoria in what is a shameful double standard, to say the least. It's socially irresponsible and conducted by a woman who once declared she wanted to see Australia burned to the ground. This is not the way to have a sensible conversation. In other news of late, the first round of industrial relations talks between the Morrison government, businesses and unions have been held. The government has been urged to reconsider what to do with its JobKeeper package after discovering a $60 billion error that leaves us better off than first thought. And Daniel Andrews' Belt and Road Initiative is creating friction, not least in his own party. That's The Week in 90 Seconds. The Week That Was in 90 Seconds. Now, some of those issues we'll have to come to next week. I'll be talking about the importance of the recovery from recession, the importance of debt. That'll all come in next week's podcast because there has been a lot of development about uh, this story in America, which has caused Australians to do a fair bit of thinking in recent days. And it's also caused a fair bit of nonsense to be spewed by certain left-wing media outlets. I'll come to that in a moment. This week's cross-examination is brought to you by Revolution Performance. Get strong, get, strong, get stronger, get stronger, and be the strongest. Get 
Well, naturally, given um, given the fact that Australia has become increasingly reliant on America for our pursuit of what you might call cultural inferiority, catastrophic cultural inferiority, in fact, we've unsurprisingly witnessed some of the most hypocritical, socially disingenuous and downright disgraceful scenes in the CBDs of all the capital cities across the eastern seaboard in the last seven days. And the worst thing about it is it's said to continue. Last weekend, we saw Black Lives Matter protests, 30,000 in Brisbane, about 20,000 in Sydney, and about 10,000 here in Melbourne. We already know of one case of COVID-19 that has been uh, diagnosed as a result of someone attending this particular rally. Now, we don't know if it was... We don't know if this individual contracted the virus at the rally or whether they had it at the rally and showed symptoms afterwards. But when politicians and when health experts tell you that gathering in crowds of 10 to 15 or even 20,000 people is dangerous during a global pandemic, maybe, just maybe, it's a good idea to listen. On Anzac Day this year, thousands, tens of thousands of Australians stood on their front, they stood on their front lawns. They stood in their driveways and filmed themselves commemorating the losses at Gallipoli 105 years ago. There is absolutely no reason at all why any of these protests could not have been conducted on social media. Because let us not forget, it was social media that drew our attention to this issue in the first place. It drew our attention to the well. I'm, I'm going to use the term murder of George Floyd. It drew our attention on social media, so why should it be the case that social media should not be used as the medium for spreading the attention further in Australia? That is a question that needs to be answered. But the reason why it's socially unacceptable, even leaving aside the matter in in which it's taking place, I will give them some credit to a degree because at least unlike the conspiracy theory protests we had earlier in the month, the people telling us that Bill Gates and his 5G network was somehow going to cause a COVID uh, catastrophe. At least these people are pursuing a genuine issue, which is the issue of Indigenous challenges in Australia. But the reason why I've got a problem with all of this and the reason why I say it's pursuing a false narrative is because it's not about achieving solutions to the very real and complex problems. It's about making as many other people feel guilty and keeping the country in lockdown for personal fulfilment. It's about making good, honest people, many of whom have done absolutely nothing to contribute to the historic challenges facing Indigenous Australians. It's about making those people feel guilty so that they can be as downbeat and downtrodden as you are. The charge that's been levelled in Australia is that we are a systemically racist nation. If Australia as a nation were on trial, this charge would be thrown out at the committal hearing. Well, why, you may ask? Well, have a look at the major allegation. The figure that's been trotted out is, there's no, there's no other way of putting it, it's shocking on the surface. 432 deaths in custody since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, which concluded in 1991. Further analysis of that 432 figure provides some clarity. Anyone who reads the Turnbull Times, that's The Guardian, for in case you're wondering, would think that 432 deaths in custody is abhorrent and appalling, and of course it is. The implication here is that it's due to the it's the, the, the reason we've got this problem is because coppers and guards are killing fellow Australians at an almost genocidal rate. That's the implication. The idea that a death in custody has been caused by racist coppers hunting in packs like wolves ending a hunger strike. That's the insinuation here. And the truth is, and you know you listen to the entire segment because I'll explain what the real problems are along with my solutions to fixing them. The truth is, 
the deaths in custody line is a furphy. It's a furphy because, according to the Australian Institute of Criminology, which released its report in, la- in February of last year, Indigenous Australians, listen carefully, are less likely, not more, but are less likely to die in custody than the rest of the population. The numbers found that Indigenous Australians, as a rate of the prison population, are less likely to die in prison or in custody rather than non-Indigenous Australians. It's about 1.6 times less likely, in fact. And the trend has been consistent for the past 17 years. Furthermore, the evidence found that the rate of non-sentenced detainees dying in custody was lower than the rest of the prison population. The death rate, and I quote, dropped from 0.26 people per 100 prisoners to 0.16 deaths per 100 prisoners. End quote. That's a decrease of roughly 40%. So in other words, you've got Indigenous Australians who are less likely to die in custody compared to the rest of the population. They're less likely to die as an unsentenced prisoner. And the fatality rate has been dropping faster for Indigenous Australians, both sentenced and non-sentenced, than ever before, especially when compared to the rest of the population. Despite the fact that the raw numbers suggest that four times as many non-Indigenous prisoners have died since 1991. For those interested, it's more than 2,100. The system is not systemically racist because the numbers don't add up. It's probably important now to define what a death in custody actually means. The definition, according to the Australian Institute of Criminology last year, has several meanings. Deaths in custody include deaths in prison, police cells and youth detention. It also includes deaths by injuries and trauma sustained in custody, such as in prison fights, for example. It also includes police pursuits, such as car chases and people escaping such settings. It's further broken down in terms of police matters into two categories. The first, category one, is institutional settings, which refers to being in the slammer in some capacity. And the second category is in non-close contact settings, which includes, and I quote, most pursuits and sieges. So that's the background. And the number of these deaths that are occurring tell a similar story. If you look at the data from 1991 to 2016, 58% of deaths in prison in the Indigenous population were from natural causes. You know, things such as heart attacks, strokes, respiratory conditions and so forth. The thing is, if you're in prison, if you have a lengthy sentence in prison or indeed a life sentence, of course you are going to find yourself dead in prison. That's what a life sentence is designed to achieve. And if you look even further, you'll find that 32% of these deaths have occurred by suicide, largely by as a result of hanging, and 5% have occurred as a result of a drug or alcohol overdose. So immediately, you've got 95% of deaths in prison as a result of natural causes or prisoners ending lives of their own volition, be it directly as a result of hanging or indirectly as a result of drug abuse. Now, there are questions there, definite questions about treatment in prison that's leading to those circumstances, but... 95% of deaths are not a direct cause, a direct cause, of prison officers or prison guards. In case you're wondering about the other 5%, well, 4% of these deaths, if I can get it up here, 4% of these deaths occurred in prison due to external trauma, be that in the form of, say, a prison fight or a confrontation. And the report does not specify exactly what that that 4% consists of. So anywhere from 95 to 99% of these deaths are not caused directly by prison guards sitting on people for eating biscuits in cells. This is extremely rare, and the five officers involved in that case deserve, on the evidence of what we've seen thus far, to be on trial for reckless murder. I'm not entirely familiar with the statute, but they deserve to be on trial for reckless murder from what we've seen thus far. If these deaths occur, the legal system is there to hold people 
to justice in these rare circumstances. Let us not forget the charge here is not one of the existence of racism in Australia, it's the charge of national systemic racism. In the present context, it doesn't stack up. It's probably worth breaking it down into the second category as well, which is looking at the issue of police custody. And that's the one that's been particularly important in America, of course, with, with reference to the George Floyd matter. 147 deaths in police custody over a 25-year period. So that's roughly an average of six per year. And this is a biggie because this one strikes at the very heart of the police are murderous, aggressive racists, that, that notion that's been perpetuated. And again, the numbers don't seem to tell that story. The report found that 56% of deaths occur when the police are not in close contact. So we're talking about in places like car pursuits, sieges, or other pursuits that may be on foot. So that leaves 44% in close contact. Now, those numbers, incidentally, are very similar, in fact, identical for the rest of the population. But even if you find that close contact figure slightly tricky, and I agree, there isn't a really clear definition of this in, this, in the Australian Institute of Criminology report. If you break it down a bit more forensically, of the 146 deaths, 74 were classified as accidents, almost exclusively because of car chases at a rate identical to the rest of the population, about 32%. We also know that 21% died of natural causes while in police custody. Less than 10% occurred as a result of suicide in police custody. Now, at long last, and this is the big one, this is the most, this is what the matter, this is what strikes at the very core of this matter, deaths by homicide. The notion of the, quote, unarmed black man shot by white cop, end quote, has been perpetuated largely throughout the United States of America. Now, that probably says more about the United States' approach to gun control more than anything else, but we'll leave that one aside. The numbers in Australia do not present a direct equivalency at all. There have been eight unlawful homicides, according to this report, committed against Indigenous people over the past 25 years. So eight Indigenous Australians have died from gunshot wounds from police in circumstances that have been classified as unlawful homicides. There are, of course, other examples where Indigenous Australians have died from gunshot wounds that have been self-inflicted. So to put that in context, that's one every four years. Indigenous Australians are four times less likely to die from gunshot wounds in police custody than the rest of the population. I'll leave it for you to judge as to whether eight deaths in 25 years is evidence of systemic racism. Is it systemic racism? Or is it an example of eight isolated incidents where murderers need to be charged and prosecuted. That's the simple fact of the matter. Well, as I said earlier, there are genuine problems in Indigenous communities, and these do need to be addressed. I talked earlier about the deaths of natural causes, and these have been unquestionably exacerbated by concerns with Indigenous health. The trouble we've got is that listening to the Black Lives Matter movement at the weekend, no one would know of the true extent of the problems faced in Indigenous communities. Anyone listening would be of the view that the extent of the problem was murder in police cells. By and large, the numbers tell us that that is not the case. The problems we've got, or the, from what I can see, are as follows. The first issue, and this is an obvious one, there are far too many Indigenous Australians in prison. The rate has doubled in 20-odd years. It was at about 14%. In the early 2000s, it now sits at about 27 to 30%. So much so that you could almost argue that imprisonment amongst Indigenous communities has become something of a habit. It's become almost a rite of passage because such a high percentage of Indigenous Australians have found themselves in prison. And that's not a healthy message to be telling people, quite obviously. 
The second point is that of health and education standards, and they are unquestionably appalling. There are third world diseases that have been eradicated from the rest of the planet that still exist in some indigenous communities. The third matter is that employment prospects, by and large, in outback Australia are relatively grim. And the fourth one, and this is the big one I want to focus on, because this is where I think the problem is most prevalent. Sentencing laws in the Northern Territory. You know, this is going to stray into a bit of legal territory, but this is where the problem exists. This is the real problem. In Victoria, which is my home state, just 5% of deaths in custody are Indigenous people. In the Northern Territory, Indigenous Australians make up 80% of deaths in custody. Now, I will admit it is a smaller sample space, but that is the reality. Per capita, the Northern Territory locks up more people than anywhere else on Earth, excluding China and the United States. In the Northern Territory, you can be locked up without proper paperwork. You can be locked up for swearing in public. You can be locked up for being drunk and disorderly, something that was repealed in Victoria as per the recommendations of the Royal Commission in 1991. And you can very, very easily find yourself in the slammer, in the top end, for unpaid fines. Now, this, on the face of it, is very broad. It doesn't take into account things such as previous criminal convictions, repeat offending, um, the rates of domestic violence in communities being higher, or for that of drug and alcohol abuse. However, what you have here is what I'm going to call a trade-off. The trade-off is the probability of higher crime rates or the possibility of preventing deaths in custody. That's the decision that has to be made. That's the, that's the balancing act that I talked about earlier. Now, I can't solve the health, education, and employment questions today. I'll cover those in later weeks. But when you look at this problem, you see that the system, the system is not systemically racist. The system, the system is broken in one state, well, not even a state, it's one territory, in fact, which happens to adversely affect predominantly young Indigenous men. That's where the bulk of this is occurring. If you were at that protest last Saturday, I'm going to tell you this straight out. You are causing the problem here. You are causing the problem. Because what should be a serious discussion about incarceration rates doubling, about health standards at third world level, about education and employment prospects being bleak, and about the high levels of drug and alcohol abuse, the true problems, instead, all you've done is break social distancing laws in the middle of a global pandemic solely for the purpose of making other people feel guilty needlessly, and also to keep everyone else in the country at home to prevent easing of lockdown restrictions, thus crippling the economy, as a result, all of which as a result of one death, which has resulted in murder charges in a city 13,000 kilometres away. Politicians are just as gutless for allowing this to happen. I'm glad that Scott Morrison has made the announcement that charges should be laid against people protesting this weekend. However, he has no necessarily got any capacity to enforce that. It'll come down to what the individual states will do. The trouble you've got in this Black Lives Matter movement at the moment, and it's not the, it's not the message that's being sent necessarily, it's the way you're doing it. You're trying to behave like Julius Caesar, you know, the divide and conquer method. All you're doing is making everyone else's lives worse, every single one. The flagrant disregard for all of this during a pandemic is nothing short of self-seeking, it's virtuous, it's vulgar, and it's at its absolute worst. It has to stop, and it has to stop now. The evidence does not point to national systemic racism in prisons. It does not point to national systemic racism in police custody. And that's actually a really good thing, because it shows that there are problems 
specific to one state, specific to sentencing laws. They're things that we can actually fix. They're problems that can be solved. Now, Australia has a racist history. There's no, there's no doubt about that. It has racism that lives to this day. But the charge that's been leveled here is one of systemic racism. That's the word that you've been hearing trotted out. Emotion, yet again, has prevailed over evidence, as one can probably expect. They've taken an issue, blown it up like an automatic pump on a rubber glove, and tried to yell at everyone, hoping that the charge will stick. It's probably perhaps fitting, I think, that um, I should end with this closing quote. One to remember, seeing as though it came from... Uh, from the state of California in the late 1990s, and it concerned an issue, or a, a criminal matter rather, which was very, very heavily racially charged, or one that was resulted in bitter divisions along racial lines. The fact of the matter is, there are problems here. I've identified those, and I've offered solutions. And I shall continue to do that with my guest in a moment. The evidence does not amount to national systemic racism in policing, or in the judiciary. The evidence doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Australia's systemic racism charge has been defeated by evidence. It doesn't fit. Alas, we must acquit. Well, as I said in the intro, uh, while Scott Morrison has been riding a wave of unprecedented prime ministerial popularity, especially for a coalition leader, has to be said in recent weeks, so whether that remains the case uh, when the next new round of news polls comes out after Josh Frydenberg declared a recession remains to be seen. But one thing we can, however, say with complete certainty is that the wave of widespread approval and support cannot be attributed to the president of what I think you can now declare is the land of the not-so-free. Curfews have been in place right across the states of America after riots continued following the death of George Floyd at the hands, or knee in this case, of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. Chauvin has been charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. It was initially. We learned the charge was upgraded to second-degree murder, murder in the second degree, which is part of Minnesota's criminal code. The other three officers who were on the scene at Chicago Avenue on Monday night, US, uh, Monday, last Monday night, US time, have since been charged with abetting, which in layman's terms means allowing something to happen, not intervening sooner. President Trump, through his press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, God, isn't it good? how good has she been in these last couple of months, declared that he was dismayed by the conduct of the officers involved. The truth of the matter is, frankly, I've got little interest in American culture or American news stories, largely because I don't see anything particular. There's nothing about America as a nation that particularly appeals to me. British comedy is vastly superior. You'll hear various references to 80s sitcoms over the course of the next few weeks. But the truth is we do have to take some note of what's going on in America, not just at the moment but all the time because it is relevant to the political happenings in Australia because they're our largest military strategic partner and they're one of our largest trading partners, although in the next decade or so I suspect this will rapidly change. It has to be said a lot of hysteria, a lot of emotionally charged ranting, rioting and roaring about this and it's important that we return this matter to a more sensible evidentiary basis rather than perhaps an emotional one because what we've seen in news coverage this week, not just in Australia but also in the United States, has been to portray their respective nations, America and Australia, as being nations that are systemically racist when the evidence simply doesn't stack up. 
We ought to first examine uh, the sort of legal consequences of all of this. The policeman in question, Derek Chauvin or Chauvin, I'm not quite sure you pronounce his surname, I'll go with Chauvin. The footage has been widely circulated on social media platforms and on the basis of what we've seen, it is totally indefensible. That kneeling technique has been condemned by former police officers in jurisdictions right across the states of America as being manifestly excessive. And whilst the Minnesota police manual does appear to permit the use of this technique, the sort of the vibe of it, to use a Dennis DeNuto expression, is to be used as a last resort option. It's been used to restrain a dangerous or volatile suspect and should only be done as long or for a period of time as long as is necessary to bring that, that suspect under control. It's clear from the vision and the outcome that this was not the case. It's as simple as that. There's been a lot of speculations about the sort of what you might call the categories of this murder charge, and many have been asking why the book hasn't been thrown at Derek Chauvin, and the answer is simple. You have to look at what the lead-up or what the build-up to this was before you can accurately charge him with a certain category of murder. Now, Minnesota law is not exactly the same as Australian law. There are three categories of murder referred to as degrees. So the first degree of murder requires premeditation, which would be a preconceived plan to kill someone. The second requires what you might call reckless indifference, to put it in an Australian context. There are provisions within that that allow for unintentional killings to be classified under murder of the second degree, but they're not directly relevant to this case. The upgrade of the charge, though, from second to third degree is significant because it suggests that Minnesota prosecutors now believe there is enough evidence to demonstrate that there was an intention. There was an intent to kill George Floyd. I'll come back to this in a moment. Third-degree murder, which was the original charge, look, to be honest, it isn't actually a full-blown murder charge. It's designed, from what I can gather, as a law student at a non-Group of Eight university, to be for killings that are not intentional, but with factors that are so atrocious that they couldn't be classified as, as manslaughter. There isn't really a direct equivalent in Victoria, and I'm not sure exactly what it is in other Australian jurisdictions. There is some crossover in terms of manslaughter, but that's not particularly relevant here. It may all sound rather confusing, and for those who don't have any legal background, many of you may be thinking that, well, murder is deliberate, manslaughter is accidental, you know? And I don't want to turn this into a first-year criminal law lecture, but I may use this as an opportunity to introduce someone who knows a lot more about this caper than I do, someone who is now in a position to have a rather robust discussion about whether there is a problem with racism endemic in our legal system. Joining me now is a renowned defence criminal barrister from the Anvilos firm, Chris Lindsay. Good afternoon to you. Hello, Patrick. Great to be here. How are you going? Not so bad. We're very grateful to have you with us for the first of episode of Parliamentary Privilege. Okay, so we'll start with this uh, George Floyd matter. Derek Chauvin's obviously been charged with what they call second murder of the second degree under Minnesota Criminal Code. Now, obviously, we tried to get someone from Minnesota law to, uh, to have a chat to us, but apparently they're very busy, so we had to go with you instead. Bad luck, son. But uh, just explain <laughs> to us, if you can... As you can, what the difference? Because one of the questions I've been asked frequently during the week is how can someone be charged with murder, which is supposedly an unintentional murder? So can you just sort of explain as best you can, perhaps in a Victorian context, what the difference is between, say, an intentional murder and an unintentional or reckless sort of murder? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And you, you do carefully uh, draw the distinction between laws in Australia and that of our US counterpart. I suppose what was most interesting about the initial charge level against the officer was a charge of third-degree murder. I was by this person surprised with that. It's now been upgraded to a second-degree murder, which I would perceive to be more within range of what occurred. And and you've got great distinction between an intentional murder and what we have in Australia called manslaughter. And ultimately what you're differentiating there is the intent versus the act itself. And in this instance, clearly, 
it couldn't be put to a court that this police officer necessarily planned on this incident occurring, nor was there a level of premeditation involved, which is certainly relevant to distinguishing between a certain charge that would be levelled against someone. And recklessness is, in Australia, generally the courts will deem what a reasonable person would perceive an act to be that would probably cause an outcome. That's sort of the best way of describing recklessness in terms of what would a reasonable person perceive to be a probable outcome of a certain act. So it is a bit different in Australia. I'm not well versed with my counterparts in the US, but certainly a second degree murder charge, which has now been levelled against this officer, would seem to fit to me. And, and for it to be a first degree murder charge is where you're getting into the ballpark, as, as mentioned before, about levels of planning, premeditation, and the aggravating factor that would be in terms of a, of a murder charge. Yeah, so I've got to, uh, we are going to be sort of crisscrossing between Australia and the States a little bit uh, throughout the course of this. So there are provisions within the Minnesota statutes under, um, what is it, Chapter 609, which does allow for unintentional murders in the second degree, but they're not particularly relevant to the, uh, the Chauvin matter specifically. So just in relation to in this question of premeditation. So the Los Angeles Times penned a piece during the week talking about how in the event of a 911 call, he was brought to the scene on this basis, it can't be a premeditated murder. Is that Would that be a fairly accurate summation as to why it couldn't be a premeditated murder because he was there supposedly on the guise of doing his job? Well, yeah, generally in terms of you know, proving premeditation in a case like that would be that, yeah, correct, he's in the course of action, um, he's been called to the scene of a crime. And, and look, there is, however, a murky part to this, and, and that is that intention can be formed on the go, if you like, and clearly what's interesting and, and fascinating about this case, if I can use those words for what is ultimately a, a tragic and horrific incident, mm. this police officer who is understandably highly trained in these sorts of situations and they go through vigorous training about uh, correct procedures and protocols with, with arresting people and, and their level of force that they should be using, and and blocking someone's airways in the manner that it was done for such a protracted period of time, a question for the court to consider is certainly going to be, is there reasonably a point in time upon which this police officer had the realisation that what he was doing may actually lead to the death of this man? Now, it's often extremely hard to prove those sorts of things and the elements that would be part of a first-degree murder charge, for example, because you don't know what that man was necessarily thinking. You can only base it on what obviously occurred. And it's a very concerning, obviously, if we know, a concerning incident. But there is also that consideration about to what extent can, can one form that intention. But certainly in this instance, as you correctly allude to, it's a police officer forming in, in the course of his duty. It doesn't seem that a first-degree murder charge would fit this particular crime, but it certainly doesn't make it any better. <laughs> If I can put it in that way. Yeah, no, so that probably sort of quite clearly explains it. The one thing which um, has perhaps been the most interesting sort of outcome in all of this, aside from the sort of the, the fanfare that's followed in the uh, in hundreds of cities across America, has been this issue of police brutality, as it's been put, haven't necessarily brought about criminal charges. Why is it, in your opinion, that it's so difficult for police officers in America and obviously probably to a sort of a similar extent prison guards and so forth in Australia to be brought before trial in incidents that are not dissimilar to what we've seen in Minneapolis? Another good question. It's certainly one of those things that's very, very difficult because you've got a situation where a potential criminal is alleging that something illegal has been done to him 
Fivos charged with the responsibility of, of policing this state or this country wherever we are. And, and in terms of my experience, uh, what I can speak to is that through being told by numerous clients of mine who have been of colour, who have been Indigenous in certain instances, the stories they have told me in terms of things that have been said to them, racially motivated things that have been said to them by police officers, the sort of treatment that they have been subjected to. And I think a good example of that is what we've all seen occurred in New South Wales recently with the horrific manner upon which a 17-year-old Indigenous man was arrested where his feet were kicked from under him and his head slammed into the ground. We all know good and well with the One Punch Kill movement how dangerous that, of course, is. And, and the reality of that situation is that the individual was never charged with anything at all. So that's just but one example. I do also have a number of clients in the children's court who are Indigenous and boys of colour. Many of those are South Sudanese boys and a few of those boys often find themselves in positions where the strength of the evidence against them is a witness who has alleged that there was a black man about six foot tall running away from the scene of the crime. And that's the extent of the evidence against them. There's a real concerning pattern of that occurring and it's racially motivated, it is inappropriate to substantiate a charge on the basis that a person is purely black and there'd be no other descriptors beyond that. It's it's extremely concerning. So it is an issue. I believe that what comes about through all of this will hopefully shed a light on it so it will get better. But I suppose to answer your question that you initially asked is that all they can do they being accused people is reported to their lawyers and we, we can formulate letters and and send off correspondence to the relevant police bodies or what have you. But nothing is ever followed up. And that's indicative that's reflective of the four hundred and ninety one Australian Indigenous people that have been killed in custody since nineteen ninety one and there hasn't been one charge that stems from that because there often isn't pieces of these footage inside in the parts of the correctional facilities or in the police cells where these instances of brutality are occurring and the police know that. Certainly not to paint every police officer as one that's got racially motivated attitudes, but it's certainly something that is prevalent and that needs to be stamped out. I don't want to dwell uh, too much on this New South Wales incident to which you referred earlier. Mick Fuller, the commissioner up there, had his say on 2GB, but uh, just as a sort of a counter-argument, can you understand why if you've got someone here when he goes to a police officer and says, I'm going to break your f***ing jaw, we're going to need a beep in there as well, and is then apprehended under a manner which the New South Wales Police Force are able to do within their powers, can you understand why people would be looking at that and thinking that there is perhaps more to the story than just saying that here is an Indigenous man who has been put on his back as a result of a racist police officer? The roles of a police officer are very difficult. There's no shying away from that. But this incident is particularly concerning. Yes, the 17-year-old Indigenous boy did mouth off. That was not accompanied by physical aggression. He was slight in his bill. And there still needs to be an assessment made by these police officers as to what is proportionate and what is required to arrest the person. He was in cuffs as it was, and there didn't seem to me to be anything aggravating enough from his end. Then a distressed citizen who had been put under arrest where they felt they'd done nothing wrong and that was supported by the fact that there was no charges subsequently laid. So it is obviously yeah, just one example, but it, I think it's a good example of what needs to change and that automatic resorting to violence like that 
is far too severe. And the ramifications of what could have happened to that boy are ultimately tragic, potentially. I will come to the one deaths in custody, which you referred a moment ago. But just, I just want to sort of finish off on this, on this Chauvin uh, with one last question. As a man who is a prominent defence lawyer, you've defended a number of high-profile clients throughout your many distinguished years at the bar. Obviously, in the absence of a court being formed, we can't be held in contempt of court for anything we say as yet. But on the evidence of what we've seen thus far, and I'm sure more will come out in the trial, is there any possible? Defence, defence that there is available for Derek Chauvin. If you're in a position where you were defending a police officer who had committed an action which had resulted in the death of of anybody, is there any possible legal defence there? Given that self defence obviously isn't an option, is there any? Does he have any options at all? In my view, Patrick, no. Correctly indicated that one of the main defences to a charge such as second degree murder would be self defence. Clearly, that's not enlivened in this situation. Mental impairment is not relevant to a fully functioning police officer, what will ultimately be the subject of the court hearings will be what is the appropriate charge that will ultimately be levelled against him, whether it be a second-degree murder charge or a third-degree, or there also is, has been a, a voluntary manslaughter charge, which is a lesser charge again, mm. uh, albeit still carrying a, a significant term of imprisonment. But no, in this instance, Patrick, I can't see, I can't see an active defence at all. I'll just conclude that bit just for the clarity of some of our listeners. Uh, there was a term there used in relation to voluntary manslaughter. We do have a provision for voluntary manslaughter in Victoria, although it's extremely rare. It tends to pertain largely to suicide packs and so forth. Move on. But uh, we've obviously looked at this. Uh, we've, there's a lot of discussion in Australia, particularly with this Black Lives Matter protest, which will be taking place in Melbourne at the weekend. I've already had my say on what I think of the Andrews government in relation to that. But in terms of the matter of police custody, we've seen a lot of deaths of the Royal Commission uh, in 1991. Among the key recommendations put forward, which Rob Hulls talked about on ABC on Thursday, was that there needs to be an acceptance that jail is a last resort for Indigenous people of the Indigenous community. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Sentencing Act in Victoria, if, if nothing else, already stipulates that jail or custodial sentence is a last resort option. Yeah, that is correct. And ultimately, whilst there are certain parameters around the law that does offer protections, uh, if I could use that word, for Indigenous people. Ultimately, like any citizen of this country, when offending accumulates and escalates, there comes a point at which, in accordance with the law, uh, the court will find themselves in a position where prison is the only way they can keep either the community safe or that they can prevent this person from offending further. Now, I... I've personally been involved in various cases involving Indigenous Australians and there are actually courts set up in Victoria. The Koori Court is at the County Court of Victoria and there's also a, a Koori Court in the Magistrates Court of Victoria for, for less serious offences. And what those hearings ultimately, how they're different from a, a mainstream court hearing is that they engage Indigenous elders in the far less formal proceeding uh, where all the parties are seated together it's far more collaborative in terms of the approach taken and the accused person is far more engaged in the proceeding. So it is very different to the mainstream court. I recently have had a case where the accused Indigenous transgender male was sentenced to a significant term of imprisonment in the magistrate's court by a magistrate. The Koori court wasn't available because of coronavirus, so the case was ultimately appealed to the county court and it was heard in the Kuru Court. Ultimately, after a lengthy hearing, the judge in the county court agreed with 
my submissions on my client's behalf. And ultimately, my client was released pending a deferral of sentence, which provides my client with the opportunity to engage in various support um, and community services uh, that specifically help him and, and tie into his Indigenous heritage. And it is a really, a really great approach. And often, like a lot of issues in Victoria where, where certain things are under-resourced and under-funded, it is a process that can be improved, but there certainly is the capacity to have those Indigenous accused people treated or dealt with in the Curie Court, which takes into account all of the things that need to be taken into account when you're dealing with an Indigenous person. I'll put this one as a closed question, yes or no question. Is the Australian judicial system inherently and systemically racist? No. I wouldn't go so far as to say that, but there's certainly issues that need to be further addressed. But there is a lot of fantastic work that does go on in the courts and in the corrections department. And I think what really needs to change is there needs to be an acute understanding of the needs of Indigenous Australians and and, and tailoring a sentence, uh, which is something that's not setting them up to fail. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't go so far no as to say that it's inherently racist, but there are certainly issues. 432 is the figure of Indigenous Australians who have died in custody since the Royal Commission. Um, I've previously argued on this program that the reference to this as being a largely racially motivated matter is somewhat exaggerated, considering that a lot of this is concentrated in the Northern Territory. We know 86% of inmates in the Northern Territory are Indigenous. We also know that the Northern Territory imprisons more people on the planet, bar none, with the exception only of China and the United States. So, is it fair to say that this problem is largely concentrated in one territory in Australia and is not necessarily indicative of the remaining states and territories? To some extent, yeah, absolutely. And I think that the main thing to be taken as statistics is not necessarily the numbers per se. It's to take into account the broader meaning of what, what it is to have the Indigenous people of our country. And there's been notoriety around a number of those cases where it's said that Indigenous people have unfairly been treated and, and dealt with and manhandled in police cells and also in custody. Uh, and the rate of suicide as well is a statistic that doesn't necessarily get correctly reflected in that, but I can certainly indicate that there is great concern around that. The rate of suicide amongst Indigenous populations in custody. And I think the biggest thing to take out of it is what can we do moving forward to ensure that there is greater accountability of not only police officers, but also custody staff, the staff in the Office of Corrections, to ensure that all of the rights are being afforded to the Indigenous Australians as they should be. I have had a couple of Indigenous clients that have been denied various rights, that have been dealt with in very concerning, that been dealt with in very concerning ways, and various cases where uh, records of interviews that have been conducted by aggressive police officers have been ultimately deemed inadmissible by the court for a number of reasons. So there is a way to go, but certainly I don't perceive the situation in Australia to be anything like it is in terms of what's been what what's been occurring in, in the States and certainly the death of George Floyd is only a time, timely reminder of what has been a long standing issue. So I think we can safely say that we're agreed on a couple of the key points here. Obviously, that the in terms of actually looking at solving the problem, because a lot of this discussion has been around 
mistreatment specifically of people of certain racial backgrounds. Would it be fair to say that in the Northern Territory where a lot of these imprisonments are occurring as a result of unpaid fines and being drunk and disorderly in public, would it be fair to say that repealing the drunk and disorderly law and perhaps adopting a slightly less severe approach towards unpaid fines, which would these be more effective methods of bringing about meaningful change in the Northern Territory rather than having people on the streets protesting about matters which are largely based on emotion rather than evidence? Absolutely. You've summarised it extremely well. Uh, absolutely agree with that. And, and what really needs to be done is a, a thorough understanding of why is it that these Indigenous Australians are disproportionately representing themselves in, in their prison system. And if we had a an ideal situation where there was ample uh, educational opportunities for them in the Northern Territory, ample work opportunities available to them. And they weren't engaging in what was there for them to, to assist them and to help them and to guide them. And they were still engaging in criminal actions nonetheless. Then perhaps we'd be having a slightly different conversation. But we aren't at the point where there is a satisfactory level of resources, of funding, of support. Now, I myself haven't engaged in legal work in the Northern Territory. It is something uh, on my to-do list. So I haven't been on the ground in terms of daily court appearances in the Northern Territory, but certainly I have colleagues who have, and certainly what I've indicated in in my answer there, I believe is a a good reflection of what they have indicated to me and certainly what my clients have indicated to me in terms of some of their family and, and what's been going on in the Northern Territory. So I think that's more the issue is, addressing those societal factors, but certainly you make a good point in terms of perhaps having a a lessening of the aggressive way in which they're being punished. Okay, so we just sort of move on to one final thing. So in terms of jury composition, is there any suggestion in your mind, perhaps whether it's based in statistics or at least anecdotally, of instances where criminal trials involving a certain degree of racial tension can be swayed one way or the other simply on the composition of a predominantly Anglo-Celtic or predominantly non-Anglo-Celtic jury? Definitely. Well, there used to be uh, far more control, if I can use that word, in terms of the accused person during the jury selection process where they would have six objections they could make or challenges they're called in the courtroom. Mm. So, what that means is that when a potential jury is called, the accused person or their legal representative, they'll have an opportunity to challenge certain jurors. And undoubtedly, one of the factors at the forefront of a lawyer's mind or of the accused person's mind is, as you've indicated, is the backgrounds of these potential jurors because there is an ongoing concern that if you have a, a coloured man who's standing trial, that you do not want 12 white jury members. So there used to be six challenges it has been changed. So there now is three challenges that can be made by the accused person. So to some extent, there is an argument to be made that that is reducing um, the likelihood that an accused person could have a more balanced composition of a jury makeup. But certainly, there is still a, the provider that they can have three challenges. And, and certainly, it would be a, a concern to anyone that a coloured man would have a purely white jury and vice versa. So it is an active consideration. It's not to unfairly assume that any potential juror would have instilled their ingrained racially motivated attitudes, but it's something that is certainly taken into account. 
some would look at that on the outside and think that the fact that the defence, to start with, has the capacity to prevent any potentially hostile jurors, for want of a better expression, from taking part, aren't we already living in a system where criminal trials, considering we know that 50% of them result in acquittals anyway, are we already in a system where the odds are very much stacked in the favour of the accused as it is? Well, Patrick, and that could be reflected and that could be a reason as to why the amount of challenges afforded to an accused person has been reduced from what was previously six challenges. Uh, And there was obviously some commentary around that, that there could perhaps be too much construction from the accused person in terms of the composition of a jury that may or may not suit them. It has been reduced to three, which I think perhaps is, in response to your question, perhaps a fairer outcome in terms of the accused person having less control over the makeup of the jury. But that's the, the current situation. And as I say, the accused person is entitled to those challenges, as is reflected in the law, and that's the way it is in this country. That's one of the great things about the uh, presumption of innocence, I suppose, which is not always reflected <laughs> around the world. Well, it's, um, it's been great to talk to you. I'll just end on one, uh, on one final question. Obviously, as a distinguished member of Van, the Anne Velos, if I pronounce that correctly, Anne Velos for that's correct, and Velos Criminal Law. And Velos Criminal Law, who, uh, who are getting the obligatory plug at the end of this. Where, so where do you see your career trajectory going from here? I won't use the Kath and Kim expression of career trajectory. Where do you see your uh, <laughs> career taking off from here? Well, I think I'm enjoying what I'm doing at the moment and, and can find myself continuing to do uh, defence work, continuing to work with people and, and helping and assisting in the best way as possible. And then aspirations to maybe be on the bench one day as a magistrate or a judge and positively influence the community in that way. But certainly at this point, I'm enjoying the role that I currently have and that's the way that I see things at the moment. Very good indeed. Well, uh, Chris Lindsay, it's been great talking to you and uh, we wish you the best of luck in your endeavours going forward. Chris Lindsay, thank you for your time. No problem, Patrick. Thank you. Patty's work. This protest is an appalling double standard to say the least. Whilst New South Wales went to the Supreme Court to shut down a rally of 20,000 people that would break social distancing laws and numbers, the Victorian government ticked it off and allowed it to happen. This is the same Victorian government that bans gatherings of over 20 people for all other purposes. It's the reason that clubs are still closed. It's the reason why community sport is being cancelled. And it's the reason why calls to Lifeline have spiked during the pandemic. And with footy returning to empty stadia this week, would it not be wise for 30,000 people to turn up with scarves wrapped around us, banging down the gates at the Ponsford stand and storming in? Because apparently if the pandemic is well and truly past us, so long as you're holding a placard. But the worst of all of this hasn't been the violent protests that we've seen overseas, but the virtue signalling we've seen right around the world. Flats from the political left on the platforms of social media. One thing I can say is that posting a black screen on your page is achieving precisely four-fifths of rule. If you want to make lives better for communities that have experienced proven disadvantage, economically, socially, politically and emotionally, for the best part of 200 years, and albeit to a lesser extent these days, I've documented how this problem is not systemic and I've talked about ideas on how to make the situation better in terms of law reform in the Northern Territory and it also goes so far as to add welfare reform into that one as well. At least I actually have the intellectual sensibilities to talk about what can and what needs to happen and examine what can be done because all we want is a better Australia.
Posting a blank picture in an effort to take credit for a movement you have nothing to do with is grubby at the very least. You have the intellects of boiled potatoes and the morality that has disappeared quicker than Harold Holt. You are self-aggrandizing, egomaniacal twats that are socially disingenuous and willfully ignorant of the ways to bring about proper reform. If you want to make a difference, sit down and talk about what's going on. Discuss the problem, analyse the data, examine why it's occurring and put forward solutions to your local member of parliament. That's how you help fellow Australians and Indigenous communities. Even if a quarter of the fully certifiable Moreland City Council residing arrogant socialist spuds who have nothing meaningful or insightful to contribute other than a few hollow and a useless post on your Instagram page and actually bothered to put something together that could be used to help Indigenous communities, the political change, believe me, would be inevitable. Violence and virtue signalling are modern-day monstrosities that have to stop, and they have to stop now. Stop basing your life around Mark Zuckerberg's apps and actually use whatever remaining brain cells you may have that haven't been ruined by self-centred, self-imposed stupidity and make a proper difference. That's the whack for this week. Well, we've certainly had much to discuss this week and we've got many more items to cover off next week, including the importance of reducing our national debt. And I'll explain why it actually matters to you and why coalition supporters in particular talk about it quite so often. I'll also explain to you what this recession means and how we as a country can recover through the worst period of economic performance in our country in 30 years. And I'll also be talking about China, not just the Belt and Road Initiative that Daniel Andrews has signed us up to, but the implications of the new world order and what a future that is China-led will look like in Australia. That's just about all we have time for this week. Don't forget, if you are listening to us via your chosen podcast platform provider, rate us five stars, give us a like, and give us a positive review. We need all the help we can get. Until next week, we've got Clear to Land coming up. We've got Bluster and Bulldust coming up. We'll be back next week. Until then, look after your mum, and I'll talk to you again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Podcaster Paddy Network. Your listening session doesn't have to end here. Visit podcasterpaddy.com for the best variety of solo podcasts in Australia. Whether it's politics, sport, aviation or comedy, Paddy will keep you entertained on podcasterpaddy.com. 